Oh man, this is a great episode. We, you know, we pivot a little bit away from the standard orthopedic episode with orthopedic surgeons and we bring the fiery auburn haired Aaron Whitehead, who is the surgical coach. She's really cool. I mean, I'll tell you, I was drawn into to listening to her. She's got a tremendous following on LinkedIn. Uh, her expertise is really helping surgeons uh, to be able to find their inner demons, if you will, that are going to help you to move forwards, get rid of complacency. She hates the term physician burnout, but really what she does is provide some really unique counsel on how you can improve your inner self, innovation of yourself to be able to do really cool things moving forwards. Very unique episode. Loved it. Hashtag follow the fro. From Medical Media, this is The Author Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of The Ortho Show podcast, where we bring you the best of the best in the orthopedic space. We're going to take a little pivot today. We're not talking just to an orthopedic surgeon per se, but we have Erin Whitehead on, who is a surgeon coach. Uh, She's the uh, CEO of Kick the Ceiling, uh, where she does concierge executive coaching. She's one of the most prolific messengers on LinkedIn with over 25,000 followers. Erin, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, fantastic. We'll really, really thank you for being here. And I thought that this would be really unique to get you on because I think in the in this sort of post-pandemic world in which doctors are really trying to figure out a way to separate themselves from other people can be a little difficult for them to truly understand how best to do that. So I thought it would be great to have you on to provide you know some advice and counsel on how you're helping uh, doctors to sort of create the uniqueness of who they are. And so I thought we would start with, why don't you just give us a description of what a surgical coach is and, and what you do? So I am a certified executive coach. And when I was going through my training, the person who I was training with said, whatever you do, never sell yourself as an executive coach because nobody knows what the hell that is. <laughs> well, that's so, good. Cause that's a great place to start. I this love is it. A, Go. <laughs> absolutely. So <clears throat> I'm officially certified as an executive coach, but I'm really a performance human performance coach. So taking you from where you are, wherever your baseline is, your status quo, and helping you and coaching you to double down on your ambitions faster without taking a step back in your career or disturbing your reputation. So basically working with your mindset, um, it can be in a leadership role. It doesn't have to be, hence the executive coach. Most of the time I work with my clients um, on the personal side. And it fuses in and extends to the professional side as well. So we go through basically where is it that you are versus where is it that you want to be? Why is there a gap? Why is it that you want to go? Where it is that you want to go? How can we get you there? And how can we get you to double down on giving yourself permission in order to do so? So it sounds to me like you're uniquely identifying the qualities of each individual person that you're going to be working with. Well, yes. Um, I mean, everybody's unique in their own special kind of way. Um, but specifically, you know, the concepts that I, I coach to have an underlying theme and it's permission and validation. So when doctors come to me and they think that they want to hire an executive coach, 
I always have to make sure that we know why you want to do this um, and that this is the area and the journey that you want to go into, but it has to be a good fit. It's like finding a spouse when you find a coach. It's extremely personal. Um, we get into the nitty gritty. I have to make sure that you're coachable. You have to make sure that my skills are, you know, top of the line. That way we can sort of mesh well together and that there's a synergy that doesn't happen. We have to part ways. It's extremely personal. And, and I would imagine that people come with, with different, different issues that they're coming to the table with that they want to improve on, right? Are you a great public speaker? Are you looking to improve your, your positioning on, on LinkedIn in a marketing space? You know, all of these things. I would think that each person that comes to you would have some unique tools that need to be sharpened, if you will, but things that you can do to sort of help them figure out how best to improve on what they're trying to accomplish. So I'm happy that you brought that up because most of the time doctors will pick up the phone and they'll call me or they make an appointment with me for discovery interview. And they'll say, well, I think I need to do this. And they'll stipulate something that's on the surface, just like all of the things you just mentioned, like, doubling down on LinkedIn or doing better on marketing strategies or, um, you know, becoming a better public speaker. But all of those, if you ask me, are surface level challenges. It's under the surface that there's something else that's been brewing or percolating that we need to attack and overcome that challenge first. And when we do that, whatever it is that you're looking to do, become a better public speaker, publish a book. Um, I don't know go on a lecture series at medical school, whatever it is that you're doing, none of that is going to come through as authentic if you don't work on what's below the surface. I mean, I hate to say it, but you're sounding kind of like a psychologist there, Erin. You're going deep in. Yes, I know. So I am definitely not a licensed therapist. So a lot of people think that executive coaching or life coaching has to do with dealing with trauma. And while there can be some parallels, I don't touch any of that with a 10-foot pole. So if I say we're going underneath the surface, it doesn't mean that we're dealing with the drama with your mama back in the fourth grade. It means we're talking about potentially your inner critic, your um, need for validation by the outside public, um, the reason that you can't lose the weight for good, all of these other things that are happening that are giving you start-stop patterns that we need to overcome. It is not licensed therapy and coaches should not be practicing licensed therapy, period. And executive coaching is not a replacement for licensed therapy either. So when doctors come to me, I need to be very, very, very clear. If you think that your marriage is going to be sewn back together because you are in executive coaching, you are fooling yourself. So, so when they call, so, I mean, these doctors call, they're obviously, they're reaching out to you. I'm assuming that's how you generate business. You're not reaching out and cold calling doctors. They, they find you, they say, Aaron, I'm having these issues. This is what I want to accomplish. Can you help me do this? And it, there must be a, a way in which you, you sort of dissect through some of these things to get to these issues, to be able to help them uh, make the corrections that are needed to accomplish their ultimate goals. Yes. So uh, a lot of times the doctors will reach out to me and they don't exactly know the path that they need to be on. They just know, I want to stop feeling the way that I'm feeling right now. I'm sick and tired of it. I've been spinning in circles. I don't know how to fix it. They've probably downloaded every single personal development book or 
a white paper that they could potentially find looking for these magic answers that don't exist anywhere on Google. And they're coming up empty. So we have to go in and we have to figure out why is it that you want to be coached to begin with? Where did that even come from? Two, are you even coachable? I'm not going to take you on as a client if you're not coachable. You got to figure that out. And three, are you actually going to put in the work? You know, I, I love the word, the term coach, right? I mean, there's a term mentor where you're sort of, you know, sort of helping along, but coaching implies an active process. That's an interaction that goes both ways between the person that's being coached as well as the coachee uh, to basically, to be able to accomplish those goals. And so I think your last statement is really important. You know, are you going to be engaged? Are you going to be honest? Are you going to be open to allow you to be able to be coached along the way to be, to be better at whatever it is that you're, you're trying to accomplish. And I can imagine, I mean, there's some people that are just starting out and you probably have some other people that are very accomplished who are perhaps maybe looking to go to the next level beyond where they're already at a reasonably high level. Yes. So you don't have to wait 10 or 15 years in your career to seek out a performance coach. In fact, if there's any residents out there who are listening, or you've just, you know, landed your first job, potentially you need to be seeking out a performance coach so that you are not in the place where the 50 somethings and 60 somethings are when they pick up the phone and call me. So let's run through a list of, of let's say, let's say the top three or four things that you get called about from physicians who are looking to make improvements in what they're trying to accomplish. So for example, they actually, it's not three or four things. It's one thing. Okay. They want to make a pivot in life and they are looking for permission in order to do it. If it's one thing I know about doctors, it's that they have a roadmap as a doctor. So when they try to describe to me what it's like to be in the operating room and do surgery in the exact same surgery for years and years and years and years, and years there might be a couple of different tweaks to surgical procedure or technique, or maybe a new uh, med tech or device that's entered in. But the basics, when you strip it down, tend to be the same. Yet in their personal life, they're looking to make some type of shift and they don't want to screw up. They don't want to go forward and fail. And they're looking for a coach to help them coach them through the journey. So they're looking for permission. One, like, well, you know, I might fall flat on your face. And I tell them, you might fall flat on your face. It's not for me to tell you you are or you're not. This is your journey. You have to take it. I don't. Um, and secondly, you have to be okay with doing it. Because if it's one thing that they might not know, right, is the business side of healthcare or the business side in general. And in business, you have to take action so that the market can speak to you, so that you understand what the market is saying. You get feedback, and that's how you iterate, and you know whether or not you're on the right path or you need to shift. And doctors are so good at performing the exact same function, the exact same routine in the exact same manner. Every single day when they wake up, it's just a different patient. Um, and maybe a couple things that are different too. But for the most part, their clinical days and their OR days run about the same. And then you move into their personal life and all of a sudden there's some chaos and it's been building for a while and they need to make some type of shift and they're almost nervous to do it because there's no roadmap. 
You know, it's interesting on the ortho show, we deal with innovation of all types, right? We deal with innovation and technology in the business world, but I always, almost get a sense as you're talking that this is an innovation of self where, where you're going to need the courage, you know, to try and do something new or different, right? Innovation requires courage. And, and oftentimes there can be failure as much as there can be success, but the willingness to, to make a change about who your persona is, I think that's a major challenge for many people to consider. 110%. And like any change that someone makes in their life, it's almost the acceptance that whatever you're doing right now isn't working. And people can get really sort of sticky around that, having to admit to themselves that they have either been doing something wrong for a little while or what they've been doing hasn't been working. And in order to make that that new change, they have to move out of their status quo or out of their comfort zone and start doing the real work that makes them feel like an outsider. So you're absolutely right. And I'm happy that you used the word courage and not confidence because I, I beat this as hard as I can on social media. Confidence is the biggest myth. I swear it is. You don't need confidence in order to move forward. So think about all the things that you did for the very first time, even as a kid where you never needed confidence, but you needed all kinds of courage, like riding your bike with no training wheels, like jumping off the high dive for the first time. If any of you who are listening have ever gone up and walked the plank of the high dive for the first time and looked down into the pool and you thought to yourself, holy hell, <laughs> maybe this is a bad idea, but all your friends are like, jump, jump, right? You needed all the courage that you could possibly get and you gussied it up and you did it and then it wasn't so bad. So yeah, you, you need to dust off your courage and find your fire and you're right. There is a self-actualization phase that needs to happen because doctors sort of set their sights in the future when they're in med school and when they're in residency about how their life and how they want to plan their life. And, you know, in their forties and fifties, those same plans may not still hold true yet. You're trying to hang on to them so tightly that you haven't recalibrated the expectations of yourself. And you're sort of still living with that med school student mentality of, this is who I should be, or, you know, this is what I should have accomplished at, you know, 45 years old or something like that. And if that's not the case, we do need to recalibrate. So yes, sometimes it can be that self-realization and that self-actualization that we have to go through. And you're right. It takes a lot of courage. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, when you go through medical school and you learn, you learn how to do these surgeries and see the patients as you talked about, I mean, that's the stuff that you know, with repetition, you get good at and, and over time you develop expertise and wisdom, right? And, but conceptually, if you want to start doing different things, if you want to move into medical device design, if you want to get into to writing a book or, or moving into, you know, um, uh, professional education, things that are not in your comfort zone that you haven't done, it can be very difficult for doctors to want to make that transition. So I could see how meeting with someone like yourself would be able to provide them, you know, some ideas and, and counsel on how you can sort of move into a new space, if you will, to try and do new things. And let's be clear, coaching is not consulting. So for example, many people get confused by this. They think that if they hire me, I'm going to have all of these answers. It's going to be the magic sauce. I'm going to tell them everything that they need to do and they're going to go do it and everything's going to be grand. And that's actually not how it works. So people sort of pull a parallel to, for example, myself and say a golf coach. 
So when you go golfing, your golf coach will tell you, you know, this is how you hold your wrists. This is how you pull up. This is where your hips should be. This is how you should, you know, how quick you should come down on the downswing, et cetera. It's telling and telling is actually consulting. So when clients come to me, I don't tell them what they need to do asterisk unless I detect in the Venn diagram, the unknown unknown. Okay. This guy doesn't know what he doesn't know. And it's definitely beyond a blind spot. Let me try and point this out here. Otherwise, my job is really to ask more high impact questions to get you to think harder, deep, dive uh, below the surface and figure out the answers that you already have. Get you to have some aha moments, pull some of that creativity out. And then you show up the next day with those tactics that you thought about. Otherwise, if I'm telling you what to do, it becomes Aaron's journey. And now you're on my path and that's not coaching at all. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. So, so it's interesting. I mean, I think of coaching and it sounds like what you're doing, it's a process, right? I mean, this is not a one-off event. Call me, we have a moment and then you walk away and you're done. I mean, this goes on for a period of time to the person eventually gets to the point where they're satisfied that they can move forwards. Right. So I like to call the first 90 days, the acute stage. So this is when you are trying to figure out more about what is it that I really want to do? Actually, the question that I'll ask you is, what do you need to stop doing? People can come up with that answer a whole lot faster than what do you need to start doing? So you need to think about it. Those of you who are listening, what do you need to stop doing right now in order to move forward? You know what that answer is. You're either unwilling to do it or you've been procrastinating. You need to do it. So once we figure out what you need to stop doing, now what do we do with that extra space that's been created? because you don't need to start putting things into that space that don't belong and start procrastinating more. Yeah, no, we're creatures of habit by definition. Mm -hmm. It's just part of our species. So I mean, what I'm hearing is, you know, can you eliminate some of the bad habits and then maybe create some new habits that are good? I don't know. Again, it's not my area of expertise, but that just sort of comes to mind. Potentially, but I do want to touch on habits for just a second because habits can be fleeting. So yes, potentially there is literature behind uh, the fact that if you do something repetitiously for so many days, potentially you've created a habit until you stop doing it one day, then it's no longer a habit, is it? So I don't try to create habits with clients. In fact, I talk about crucial tasks. So if you're a client of mine, you'll be required to come up with three to five crucial tasks. I call them crucial tasks for a reason. They're crucial. It means that you need to come up with three to five crucial tasks that you are going to accomplish every single day within 24 hours. And when the day resets and you wake up the next day, you start all over again. They're crucial and defined that way because if you don't do it, a mental breakdown is probably happening in the next 72 hours. That's how crucial it is. All of this has to do with the personal side. So don't tell me, oh, this is what I wanna start doing in my business, it's gonna be a crucial task. I'm going to shut you down because if you put crucial tasks on your business, it becomes a codependent relationship that you have to be in business in order to get that crucial task done. We're talking about personal. We're talking about leveling up. So here's some examples. My clients will choose something like vitamins and supplements every single day. They'll choose some type of healthy lifestyle or eating. They'll choose X amount of minutes or time with strenuous physical exercise. They will choose, which is one of my favorite and one that I often recommend is 
personal development literature. And when I say personal development, I don't necessarily mean Simon Sinek start with why. I mean, personal development literature that you read 15 minutes or 20 pages every single day for the next 30 years out until the sunset, till your last breath on something that is going to help you. For example, the supermajority of doctors who are listening to this right now don't know squat diddly about the business side of healthcare. So what would it do for you if you read valuation, corporate finance, competitive strategy, business models, and you did that for 20 minutes every single day without fail when your wife is in labor, when there is a hurricane coming around the corner. I mean, they are crucial tasks and you get them done. And when you do that, you start seeing someone change. And you notice Scott Sigmund looks uh, happier. The patients have started to notice, you know, a change in his bedside manner and they've been, you know, positive. Like his, his kids are saying things like daddy's happier, things like that, because what's happening, the transformation is happening under the surface and it comes out in your professional life. So three to five crucial tasks, figure out what they are and start them tomorrow. You know, what I'm hearing here is sort of very similar, I think, to the way in which we, we try to practice medicine. You know, there's experience-based medicine, and then there's evidence-based medicine. And I get a sense, uh, and I'd like you to dive into this a little bit so the listeners can understand how you are uniquely qualified to do what you do, but there's a lot of evidence-based theory that you use as, as a surgeon coach. So tell us a little bit about, you know, your background, how you got here, and, and what, you know, what your, your true qualifications are that made you here at this moment. Right. So I am a fellow at the Institute of Coaching and for myself and my fellow fellows, we have something in common. We've spent about 25 years plus in the corporate world. And there was some type of life-changing event that led us to becoming a coach. So I'll back up for just a second. Coaching is not a licensed profession like medicine is. Basically, Anyone can splash the word coach on the tail end of their name, throw up a website, drop some business cards, and start handing them out and charging people money. That's why I caution those of you who are listening to do your research on, on who you're hiring. I went through a very tumultuous part of my life and my personal life was bleeding into my professional life. It was just a train wreck that just couldn't stop. And I said to myself, I've got to get this under control. I found an executive coach and was with him for just under two years. And he helped me reframe my worst inner critic. So I was trading my dreams of being an entrepreneur for the desk job for about 25 years because it was safe and I got a paycheck every two weeks and I had health insurance and a 401k and everything was nifty nifty, but I so desperately wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I, I didn't because my biggest fear is the fear of embarrassment. And in order to be an entrepreneur, you have to put your ideas out into the world. And I was like, there's no way that this is gonna happen. There's no way because I am so afraid that people are gonna point and laugh at me. Like right now, I'm definitely afraid that I'm gonna trip over my tongue. And if I do, can you please cut it out? Can you, can you cut that out of the podcast, please, <laughs> for my own sanity? No. Um, so what I did actually was I was coached and learned how to shake hands with the monster in the bed, which is my fear of embarrassment. And I fell in love with the executive coaching process, did my homework and found 
a institution that um, runs through the International Coach Federation, which is the gold standard for the coaching industry, and went and I think it was it was just under a year and went through the proper training and hold credentials now as a certified executive coach, but I've also gone through and done other training above and beyond, like many of the doctors who are listening now. So um, I've trained at Cornell, I've trained at Wharton, I've trained at Harvard. I continue uh, with my education credits in all kinds of different aspects with respect to coaching and to neuroscience. So I take this extremely seriously. I am one of a few people, specifically the fellows at the Institute of Coaching, who do this full-time. This is not a side hustle. This is not some sort of thing I just decided to land on because COVID hit and you know people lost their jobs and I'm like, I think I'll be a coach. No, I have been doing this for about six years, full-time, 100%. I dedicate my life to this because of the life-changing event that I had and I went through and the way that executive coaching helped me. I would rather spend and dedicate my life helping others and having a front row seat to their transformation and journey than do anything else in my life besides maybe motherhood. <laughs> so it's a close second. No, that's fantastic. I mean, that's just uh, articulated beautifully. And for all the listeners, I know I'm sitting here and engaged and, and listening, and this is actually the first time that we've met and there was certainly no prep for this, but, you know, obviously you're just incredibly engaging and I get a sense that, you know, that, uh, that people are drawn into the process, which can help to convert and, and make them innovative of self, I suppose. But there's a couple of quotes that you, that you did sort of give me in prep, which I'd like to go through a few of those things so you can sort of uh, talk to the listeners about what these mean exactly. So one of the ones listed here, which I like, is that most people's dreams are for sale, and I'll tell you why. You know how many people out there on social media are... <laughs> they put up posts every single day, um, like just do it and just go for it and this and that, and you know, know your worth, blah, blah, blah. Um, no, most people and the people who are listening right now have some type of dreams that they want to chase. And what they're not willing to admit is that your dreams are for sale. And people sell their dreams for two reasons. The first reason is because they experience a little bit of failure. And they go, oh, well, gosh, well, that wasn't for me, you know, missed that bullet. And they jump back into their corporate job or whatever it was that they were doing before that they hated and then come up with some sort of excuse for the rest of their life and die miserable. And the second reason that they sell their dreams is because they experience a little bit of success and they stop pressing on the gas and they let it up. And before you know it, they were, they were killing it like one or two years ago. And now they're out on the unemployment line because they forgot you know, what it took and the pace that it took and the gasoline that it took that they needed to be able to keep up. So yes, most people's dreams are for sale. If you wanna know who you really are and you wanna find out, go be an entrepreneur. Oh, it is so hard. I mean, entrepreneurship, it, it, uh, there is no book, right? No. There, there's, no, there's no documented path. There's as much failure as there is success. Uh, it takes, you know, persistency, uh, developing a team all around you to make sure that you're, you know, you have the right players in place. And even if you do all of that right, you're still not guaranteed to have success. 
Exactly. And most people don't understand that you're going to get punched in the face multiple times a day. You're not going to see it coming and you're going to know, you're going to need to know how to get back up. But when you, and if you become an entrepreneur, you learn what you really tolerate. You learn your real tolerance level. You don't know that working for corporate. You don't know that at all. You don't know about resilience. You know how to be in a cushy, cushy place and uh, complain on social media um, and flip into a downward dog with the caption, chasing happiness and think you're fooling everybody. You're not fooling anybody. So, yeah. You know, so I find it interesting. So you, you sort of came from the corporate world and, and you've made a name for yourself now as, as the surgeon coach, right? I mean, you, you have a niche, you know, within this coaching industry of, of what you really like to accomplish. And, you know, one of the other things that we have talked about or we were mentioning was, was physician burnout as well. And so that must be something that you deal with on a regular basis. So, so give us your thoughts on physician burnout and where we are as we move forwards out of this pandemic. I would say at least half of the doctors who I speak with, while they're telling me their story and the crux that they're in, they will then at the tail end of it, and almost as a question, will say, I don't really know. Maybe I'm burned out. Like, I don't know, maybe that's it. And what are they looking for? Validation, just like I told you 20 minutes ago. People are looking for validation. Is what I'm thinking accurate or am I completely crazy? And the first thing I say is, you're not burned out. And that's the last time that you're going to say that word in this space. The physician burnout rhetoric, um, in my opinion, is destructive to all healthcare workers or any workers in any industry um, because I think it's completely ineffective. I think it's disorganized. And I think it's mentally weak. It is basically who has it, where can we find them, how bad is it, is this even real, there's so many questions out there and there's not one consistent answer. It's the newest buzzword because of COVID it was over amplified and depending who you speak with definitions vary. It's completely ineffective because there's so many doctors who are actually more willing to raise their hand and say, I'm burned out than I'm depressed. So they latch on to the burnout word. Um, More doctors complain about administrative tasks and the burden of this being a source of stress because there's so much outside contact with the patients that they have to get done. And administrative tasks is not burnout. It might be stress. So that's two separate problems and therefore requires a completely different solution. And finally, it's 100% mentally weak. The physician burnout rhetoric invites healthcare workers to bang their victim drum as loud as humanly possible for first place. They're selling physician burnout retreat tickets for, I don't know, $497. How much does it, how much work do you have to do in orthopedics to make $497? And they want you to go spend your hard-earned money at a physician burnout retreat, putting your toes in the sand, which isn't even normal on a daily basis and giving you like views of the beach and not even teaching you the real tactics of what it takes to actively recover from falling into fatigue, which is why when you get back to the clinic on Monday, when all of your challenges are waiting for you, 
nothing has changed and you fall right back into complacency and into places that you need probably licensed therapy for, not a coach. So it's just, I get very heated about this. I, I did, I did, <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't notice. No. <laughs> but I, and, and I will remind the audience that the, the physician burnout, if you haven't already noticed, is a business model. It is a multi-million dollar business model and it invites you to be weak and you are not. You are a doctor. You didn't just get into medical school. You had to fight your way in. You had to fight your way through medical school. You had to get yourself through residency and that took a warrior. You have a warrior within. The burnout rhetoric will never remind you of this. I think that your words are very powerful. I think that uh, you're innovative in thinking. I think that you're pers- you're definitely persuasive in, in, in your language. And I think this has been great for the Ortho Show to bring on someone like yourself who is on necessarily the, the periphery of the orthopedic space, but just a unique way in which you're helping orthopedic surgeons. It was really a pleasure having you on air. It was a very refreshing uh, episode. Thanks for having me. No, it's my pleasure. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro host of the ortho show till next time.